Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come among us as we read and digest your word, that you would make it sweet to our lips or heavy in our tummies as you see fit. Amen. Years ago, my wife was a nursing student at Emory University, and as part of her scholarship, they would go down to Moultrie, Georgia every year and work there in camps uh, of migrant farm workers. Some of the stories that she told me cast into stark light what is at stake in our text this morning, a text that is about work and idleness and rest. The men who would come into the camps uh, to pick eggplant were paid by the bushel basket that they would carry on their shoulders. I think that they made somewhere on orders of $2 a basket. And so it was incumbent upon them not to ever stop working. No work, no eggplant, no pay. One man came into the tent where my wife was working and he pulled up his sleeve and showed an arm that had turned gangrenous. He didn't want to stop working when he got plucked by a thorn about two weeks prior, and so the wound festered and they had to cut off his arm. That same week, uh, several of the people from the Emory Clinic treated people who were, had been poisoned by diazinon, which is a chemical that was dropped out of an airplane as the workers were in the fields picking and planting and sowing, the planes would come over anyway and drop pesticides. Now, the farmers were uh, supposed to make sure that they didn't do this when the workers were in the field, of course, but when you view labor as an input, like any other input, like fertilizer that can be traded and changed out and outsourced and downsized, well, then it's just one more thing that you have to think about. The irony thickened when my wife said that uh, every week during the week, each day, they would go to one of the area churches where uh, the women of the church would make lunch for them. You know, those little itty-bitty sandwiches that are cut out of white bread, like cucumber sandwiches, you ever had those? That kind of stuff. The issue was that at the, at the three largest churches in town where they were hosted during the week, the, the, the nice nurses from the nice nursing clinic. Turns out that, uh, wh where do you think all the local farmers in that community who were dropping poison from the sky on their workers, where do you think they went to church? Moultrie, Georgia is one of those places uh, that Kierkegaard said, when even the cows are Christian, nobody's a Christian. Because everybody goes to church, right? I tell that uh, horrifying story of injustice because it casts into contrast for us the stakes of what Paul says this morning. It seems like Paul is being kind of harsh to our ears when he said, if there are lazy bones in your church, don't have anything to do with them. That's, that sounds a little mean. Most of us were raised in a church culture that thinks of the church as a community of care. 
merely a community of care where all are welcomed and the greatest sin is not being friendly. My teacher Stanley Hauerwas wrote a wonderful essay called Discipleship is a Craft and the Church is a Disciplined Community. Paul understood that at the heart of the church's community is the idea of work and rest and mutuality. And if that was disrupted, there was a problem at the heart of the community. It would destroy the community. Paul says, uh, I want all of y'all to do like I did. I came among you uh, not resting on my laurels, but working hard. Remember, I had a side gig making tents. I didn't take any money from you, even though that's a pastor's right. I didn't take anything so that no one could say that my gospel was for sale. And that's how everybody ought to be. I think uh, Paul maybe had read that essay that Wendell Berry wrote one time where he said that it's a good idea for all pastors to have a side gig and be bi bivocational. Because when you depend upon the tithes and offerings of the people that you speak to, it becomes really difficult over time to say anything difficult and true. Paul says, if there are idlers among you, get them out. We don't have time for that. That's not who we are. problems that Paul encounters, it seems, have uh, never quite gone away. It seems like through the centuries, the church has had a really difficult time talking about why work is important. And I think we clergy are maybe partially to blame for that. At least that's what Dorothy Sayers says in her landmark essay, Why Work? She says, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocations. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. And the church is astonished to find that as a result, the secular world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. And the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become uninterested in religion. But is this so astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern for nine-tenths of his or her life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk when what it ought to be telling him is that he should make good tables. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. So often we think that when you all come in here that we need to uh, somehow convince you that you need to stop doing your secular work in, in order to come do some churchy spiritual stuff. And that the more you do the churchy spiritual stuff, the more that God is going to uh, look with favor on you. But Paul understood that it's all one thing. Spirituality and your secular vocation, the work and the life of the community that is gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, those are all one thing. And when you have problems in one, you have problems in the other. And that is exactly what was going on in the church of Thessalonica. Most of the letter of uh, both of, both of the, the books of 
First uh, uh, and Second Thessalonians are taken up with the misapprehension of the community about when Christ was going to return. Some commentators like Leon Morris say that that is, that is what is at work underneath this commentary about idleness and laziness. You see, some people had said, uh, well, Paul said himself that Jesus is going to come back any time, so let's just take it easy. Why? We don't have to do anything because Paul himself said that Christ will do it all. He, Paul said Christ is all in all, so why work? Why bother? Incidentally, I, uh, I think maybe one of my top three religious quotes ever was uh, one from Martin Luther. Somebody asked uh, Luther in his table talks once, well, uh, uh, Pastor Luther, what would you do if you knew that Christ was going to return tomorrow? He said, if Christ was going to return tomorrow, I suppose I'd plant a tree. Isn't that lovely? I'd plant a tree. Paul says, yes, Christ is returning, but that is by no means an excuse to sit around on your hands. Idleness is not to be tolerated. Understanding that Jesus is going to return does not let you off the hook for the work of your hands. It's still important. It still matters. Not only does Paul condemn idleness, uh, that's easy enough as a moral category to get on board with, right? Like, nobody likes a lazy bones. Nobody likes it when somebody's sitting down when there's work to be done, right? But it's interesting that Paul also says that there is a, a concomitant uh, uh, ethical dilemma in that not only are some people idle layabouts, but there's also this problem, it seems, with busybodies, in common parlance, we say a busybody is somebody who's doing everybody else's work instead of their own. Um, in, in our household, we, uh, we talk a lot about how um, those, those of us who are competent tend to overfunction, right? Like people who tend towards sloth and like taking it easy, they're not going to bother anybody. Those people who know how to do some stuff, they want to make sure that everybody else is doing the stuff too, right? Are you, are you okay, are we good, right? They overfunction, they overmanage. Paul says, don't, don't, uh, don't put up with that either. Everybody needs to do their own work and not everybody else's work. Now, it might be a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to go for it. I think that uh, we could use these two categories as a way of talking about labor and management. Labor and management, or maybe even labor and management and capital. I'll start with a story. When I was in college, I spent summers on a, a framing crew doing carpentry work. And um, anybody on staff can tell you the Gunbys are workers. Uh, I'm a son of a worker, grandson of a worker. We work hard in my family. and. Uh, you know, I kind of had a management college boy mentality when I came to work with these carpenter types with names like Clint and Ronnie and D-Wayne in them. And uh, I took a peanut butter and honey sandwich every, every day, and I thought, well, as soon as my sandwich is eaten, I had a drink of water, I had my sandwich, it's time to get back to work. Let's work, folks. You know, let's work. And so I would go back to work. 
And then one day, and, and the boss man would always come at lunchtime. And somewhere in my mind, I'm sure those things were connected. But uh, during afternoon break, one time old D-Wayne looked at me and said, Yo, yeah, you showing out, ain't you? I said, say what? He said, oh, yeah, you working hard when the boss man come, weren't you? I said, what? See, what old D-Wayne was picking up on was through the eyes of his resentment at a college boy working in their ranks, he understood that I had a, a kind of contempt for him and his work. Because I'm a management type, I'm a college boy, I'm a white collar guy, and we tend to look at workers as people who need to get up with the, get up with the program, right? But what they knew about me was that I was going to go back to college and write short fiction pieces using the sort of gritty details of everyday life that I had learned uh, on the job site. And meanwhile, they were going to be out in the middle of nowhere framing houses and making places for people to live, and they were going to do it when it was hot and when it was cold and when they didn't want to be there and when they were sick. And at the end of their entire life of working, they weren't going to have health insurance. And they went home at night and drank themselves to death because their joints hurt because they did it for years. And so there is a resentment there. I'm telling them what to do in a way of speaking, and they sort of resent me for it. And these things, the, these, these class conflicts, they play out not just at the individual level, but at, at, at uh, social levels and class levels too. There's this idea, uh, depending on where you stand economically, whether or not you're the kind of person who has the Marx Engels reader on your shelf or whether you retweet Milton Friedman, there's this kind of understanding that there are those people who think that way over there, and we've got to make sure that our economic ideology um, convinces them either that workers of the world need to unite or everybody just needs to work harder and take care of their own. The Marxists would have you believe that there is a struggle going on between class types, the workers and the capitalists. And we've got to overcome the, the, the you, you know, in, uh, in South and Central America, the, 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 the struggle is la lucha, the struggle. It's an eternal struggle and it's always going on. And meanwhile, the money man uh, says, well, you know, don't, don't, don't allow workers to get together and, and uh, band and unionize. That's just going to be trouble for everyone. And this goes on and on and on. And it's not just uh, a class conflict. It's also conflict between generations. Have you ever noticed that old people like to talk about young people as though they're lazy? I find it hilarious that people that are my age talk about their kids who are just now getting out of college as though they're somehow worse than they were. I want to say, bro, I knew you in 1999. I knew what you were like. <laughs> you didn't have a job, man. Incidentally, I want to say that um, this is the reason why we are founding this ministry called the Athens Fellows, which I'm heading up. It's a community of discipleship, discernment, and leadership development for post-college young adults. Because we believe that young people, the kids these days, are not inherently more lazy than we were. 
I think kids these days are actually really smart. They don't want to live and work in the environments and in the systems that people like me have created. They're tired of it. They're not going to do it. They want to work a job that has a meaning and a purpose. In one of his lovely interviews in the book called Working by Studs Terkel, he interviews a factory worker who says, for most of us, the job is not equal to our spirits. The job is not equal to our spirits. I think young people get that. And so we want to form a community around the idea of good work, that it's out there, that you can know what it is, and you can be fitted for it. Because we don't believe that it's us against them, middle class against uh, uh, working people. We don't think that there is a class struggle that is lying underneath everything in the world. No. We believe that there can be a community of people who are bound together in common work. Now, if there's one person in the last century who understood, perhaps better than anyone, the excesses of Marxist socialism and the rapaciousness of global capitalism, I think that was probably John Paul II. He wrote a lot about economics and work. And he understood that work is a place that builds community. He wrote in one of his encyclicals, it is characteristic of work that it is first and foremost something that unites people. And this consists its social power, the power to build community. In the final analysis, both those who work and those who manage the means of production or who own them must in some way be united in the community. Does that make sense? Both those who work and those who manage them and those who own the means of production, there it is, the worker, the managers, the capital. Now, you, you might not think much about uh, the tensions between those, but I guarantee you, you have almost taken it in with your mother's milk. I mean, the songs that we listen to on the radio, have y'all ever heard a country song where the banker is the good guy? <laughs> you know, they all start, I was rolling down the road in my pickup truck, that the banker gave me a great loan on because he really trusted my character. And, and the capital men uh, really have a lot of social intuition, and I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> I mean, Bruce Springsteen gets talked about as this uh, guy who writes songs for the everyman. Well, it's not everyman. He, he's never written a song, uh, an ode to the lawyer who got him his record contract deal, Right? In the popular imagination, the, the, the capital, the bankers, the lawyers are almost always the bad guys. For most of us, most of the time. I was riding around downtown the other day and I saw those, uh, the, the, the building sites downtown and I thought to myself about the, not just the structural uh, infrastructure, but the, the capital in infrastructure that had to be in place to, to build those cranes. Have you ever thought about that? Like some dude walked into a bank one day and he said, you know, I want to I take my daddy's construction company from a small town thing. I want to build big things. I want to make this city something wonderful. 
And a banker had to have the imagination to say, you know what, son, your, your daddy's banked here for 35 years, and we've always believed in you and your family, and we think you can do it. We're going to give you a million-dollar loan. Bankers aren't the bad guys, and the workers are not disposable, but they are to be knitted together in an insoluble bond of Christ-centered community. Now, where did John Paul get the imagination to see that, to see beyond the impasse of so much contemporary discourse? Well, he got it from the Scripture, of course, right? Scripture never separates the life of the Spirit from the work of our hands. From the very beginning, the story that Scripture tells is of people who are brought together, even made for one another for the purposes of good work. The story the Bible tells isn't just about the salvation of our souls, but it has a tremendous explanatory power to describe why we have such a hard time at work. The peace that our souls longs for is not attained by work or by leisure. Scripture tells a different story. In the beginning, God placed the human being where? Uh, in front of a game console? No. In a garden. And why was he put there? To till it and to keep it. To participate in the very work of God. God was the gardener who dug into the soil to make the human, the human you know, the word human and humus, hummus, dirt, it comes from the same root. God tills the dirt to make a human. And God gave man a companion in the work, a woman to be his helper and companion. The human communion was put into place not merely so that more work could be done, but so that the man could have one who was not just fit for his work, but was fit for him and he for her. And then the original damage is when the human beings start over-functioning. And the serpent tells them that they're uh, a little more competent than they've first understood, and they begin to be busybodies and take and grasp and trying to function outside of the bounds of the good work that God had given, and they, they damaged it all. Scripture says that the damage that's caused by sin is felt in our inability to form true community in the domain of work. Our forefather Adam was condemned then to scratch his living out and earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. And I'm afraid that both idlers and busybodies feel that damage now. We've already talked a little bit about idlers, the young people who don't want to work because there's no purpose to it. What's the point? I'm just working for the man. N nothing I do has any valence or meaning. There are also those people who work day in and day out, usually the parents of those young people, who think that uh, I, won't, I won't have the bread that nourishes me unless I work for it, unless I scratch out a living. I've been, I work my finger to the bone to, su to supply for this family. You ever heard that one? I work hard for the money and you can't take it from me. 
If I don't do this, how will we get fed? If I don't make partner by the time I'm 35, then who will I be? All of my friends from uh, college have made partner. Who will I be? If I don't have a white collar job, then I won't be considered as smart as everybody else I went to graduate school with. After all, what are all these student loans for? And then there's the opposite, right? The guy's sitting around under the shade tree saying, what's the point? No, no point in it. Might as well loaf and take my ease. Sin and its damage is felt in our imaginations and hopes or the lack thereof in the realm of work. Think about how much anxiety you have about your job. There's so much about who we are that is bound up in it that anytime something goes a little sideways, it goes all the way down into our core. It's, uh, for many of us, says a lot more about who we are than who we are at home or certainly at church. I mean, who are we kidding, right? We feel the damage of sin in our work. And so it must be the case that when Christ heals what is wrong with us, it's not just something up in our heads or some feeling in our heart. Christ heals our work. He heals it. If Adam was condemned to make his bread by scratching it out of the ground with the sweat of his brow, then what does Christ do for us? Sweat also fell from his brow. He sweated bullets, but why? You know, Jesus did his job like he was shot out of a cannon. You ever think about that? Like, what kind of worker was Jesus? I, I putter around in the carpentry shop sometimes, and I sometimes wonder, like, what, what kind of a... What kind of a woodworker was Jesus? He didn't, he didn't wave a magic wand. He didn't transmute nature to make his table, you know, supernaturally strong. But I bet he was a good enough carpenter that when he fitted two pieces of wood together, somebody said, oh, man, look like it grew there. And the day that he hung up his tool belt for the last time in the shop of his father Joseph and went out working for his father in heaven, Mark tells us that he got after it, right? Like he was a hard worker. You ever think about that? The Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus went out into the desert to do battle with Satan at the very beginning of his ministry, that he did it like he was shot out of a cannon. He uses wrestling terminology. He was hurled into the desert like, after it, man. Didn't our Lord Jesus say, the time is coming when darkness will fall and no man shall work? But while there is light, brother, let's get on it. Isn't that what he said? And why do you think Jesus worked so hard? He didn't have to work hard to make money like our forefather Adam. He could make bread out of nothing, right? And did. 
He didn't come to give us bread or to earn bread for himself. He was the very bread that came down from heaven. So why did he work so hard? He was the very prince of heaven by whom all things were made. He wasn't working for the money. So, so what, what, could, what could Jesus be working for? What did he not have that he needed to work for? Well, he worked for us. We were the thing that he didn't have. The only thing he didn't have. The Prince of Peace sweated bullets so we could share the love that he has with the Father. You know, the book of Ephesians says, we are his workmanship. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? We are what he is working we are his workmanship created for good work. We are what he was making in the workshop of salvation. Just as he created us once out of the dust of the ground, so when we had fallen into the muck of sin, he remakes us by water in the Spirit. He never casts us to the side when we are broken and damaged. We are his workmanship created for good work. Earlier this week, I was cleaning out my shop and my shop gets so dirty because there are so many things that I, I need to do like 10 minutes of work on or I need to make a decision about them before I throw them away. I had this old mallet and the head of the mallet is made out of uh, uh, rock elm, red elm. It's as hard as, hard as a rock. And something was busted about the handle, and I, I had thought, well, I'll just throw that away. And then I got to thinking, you know, I, there's no way I could go out to the store and buy another mallet with a head that hard. They don't make them. So one of a kind. And so I cut the bad part off the edge of the, ham, the handle and carved out a shoulder and inserted it back into the head and drove it in with the wedge. And now I got something. I think that's what Ephesians mean when it says, you are his workmanship. He has, he has worked and reworked you. He has picked you up in the places where you are broken and he's healed you. And not for no reason, not to put you up on the shelf. No, you are a mallet of righteousness. You can do stuff now. You can go out and work because that's what you're made for. That's why he worked for you. The church is the community that shares the peace of Jesus Christ. You know, did you catch in the middle of Paul's admonition, uh, don't have anything to do with them? Right in the middle of that, he's also saying, don't, don't, don't be mean. Don't treat them as outsiders. When you do have to deal with someone, deal with them as you would a brother, right? Because there is a preternatural peace at the heart of the community of Jesus Christ. Which is why he closes out by saying, may the peace of Christ be with you, right? At the bottom of it all, when you scratch away everything incidental, for Paul, for us, there is peace. When you get rid of all the mess, there's peace. 
We are the community that passes the peace of Jesus Christ. We, as reconciled sinners, can offer that to one another. And as such, we simply cannot tolerate idlers and busybodies. Not because uh, they keep us from doing what we want to do, but because that's just not who we are. We've been made for good work. And we work to share the life of God. I know that some of you have forgotten why you work. Some of you, some of you just hate getting up every morning and doing what you do. And I'm guessing that some of you either have or soon will have a transition in your work. Maybe you're changing careers. Maybe you're retiring, going from one job to the other. And you know you can do the job, but you're not quite sure why. And I imagine some of you uh, could stand to work a little harder. I encourage you this morning, when you come to this holy meal that we share, to put aside for a moment all of your anxiety about what you're going to do with your life or how you have to keep working for a mean boss or whether or not this job transition is going to give you what you need, I encourage you instead to say, Lord, in you, I already have all that I need. Lord Jesus, you are the bread that gives me life. In your work, I have peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.